Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Quentin Crew. We're the editors of Film Comment. Cinema is never on time, wrote the great critic Serge Denet. That statement never seemed to apply to Jean-Luc Godard, an auteur who was always off his time and ahead of it, a relentless interrogator of the present who always sought the horizons of a new future. This week, as we mourn the recent passing of one of our greatest artists, we invited two critics and Godard experts, Richard Brody and Blair McClendon, to talk about the filmmaker's life and career. We discussed everything from foundational works like Breathless and La Chinoise to masterful essay films like Goodbye to Language and The Image Book. We also paid tribute to the ways in which Godard's films awakened us as burgeoning cinephiles and how they continue to exert an inescapable aesthetic and political influence on both cinema and our lives. We hope you enjoy the conversation. We are digging into the life and legacy of the late, great Godard, Jean-Luc Godard, who left us pretty recently, leaving quite a big void in cinema culture. And we have two amazing guests to help us pay tribute to Godard, two people who know and love him and wrote really beautiful in memoriam pieces about him recently. And I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Uh, Blair, you want to go first? You're you're a podcast veteran, so. <laughs> yeah, a long time friend of the pod. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm Blair McClendon, um, a writer, uh, sometimes editor of films, um, sometimes filmmaker as well. Uh, and, you know, sort of owe all three of those things to Godard. And Richard, do you want to introduce yourself? A podcast rookie, if I may. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. This is the only co- context in which I can call you a rookie, Richard. So. <laughs> oh, there are plenty. I'm Richard Brody, um, film critic at The New Yorker, um, editor of the Goings On About Town uh, movies section. And whatever I do in movies, um, I do owe to my primordial, shocking experience of Breathless at the age of 17, 1975. You know, you wrote about that experience in your tribute piece, and that actually was something that we thought we could start this conversation with, because Godard has been around for so long and has made so many movies, and each of us, I think, you know, arrived into cinema at a different point in Godard's filmography, having a different kind of history, you know, that we brought to to his work. And I'm I'm very curious how each of us encountered him. So Richard, it was you, you were 17, you saw Breathless. Could you say a little more? What did you know about him? Where were you in life? Where was cinema? Well, wherever cinema was, it was no place near where I was. Um, I, I was in a state of um, blissless ignorance. Um, You know, I went to the movies on Saturday nights with my friends, just like anybody else, to see, you know, Marx Brothers revivals or Blazing Saddles or Rollerball. And um, a friend of mine said to me, there's this movie playing tonight, and I think you'll enjoy it. It's as simple as that. And where was this? This was in uh, college in Princeton. Okay. Fall of 1975, freshman year, a couple of weeks into freshman year. You know, I had seen a, a, I had seen here, this, this same friend had actually gotten me to see Bergman's Shame two weeks earlier, like two weeks to the day earlier. So I saw Shame and I said, how interesting there is such a thing as a movie that's, you know, like art as opposed to like what we do on Saturday night. 
but it, it left me curious, but not necessarily impelled to run out and consume more of it. My friend said, there's this movie playing tonight. It's called Breathless, and I think you would enjoy it. And I came out with my, you know, with my atoms rearranged. You know, the two things in life that obsessed me to that point were jazz and philosophy. I've been listening to jazz for a few years, running to New York all the time to listen to jazz, buying lots of jazz records, and then, you know, sitting home reading lots of philosophy and, and not actually doing, you know, all the things that a teenager should do, but instead, you know, reading and listening to music. And Breathless was the first experience of a movie I had ever had that seemed like, at the same time, the two things I loved most in the world. On the one hand, it was intellectually profound. On the other hand, it seemed immediate, spontaneous, wildly inventive. And on the third hand, it seemed like a movie was addressing me directly, like a filmmaker was addressing me directly. Whoever this person was, somebody was speaking to me. So the, and the idea of a three-handed three-handed filmmaker here because <laughs> the complexity there is is really something that would require that many that many appendages well that's the thing that it didn't separate out it wasn't like there was the jazz and the philosophy and the and the cinematic part was a purely transparent medium to get to the arts that it related to in my mind but rather the cinema it made the cinema seem it in, in its optimal form like a synthesis of those two things right it all kind of worked together without one you didn't have the other so when you saw Breathless, you weren't aware of the legend of Godard. I mean, was he even, I mean, he'd been making quite a few movies by then, but he wasn't like a Godard, the, you know, the maestro that we all know and River, right? Well, he had been. In other words, I, I, I fell in between the two chairs, so to speak, the two historical chairs of Godard appreciation, because, you know, in the mid-1970s, he was off the map, more or less. Um, he, he, he... It, People who, you know, people I know who experienced the 60s cinematically, you know, you couldn't get away from Godard. Godard was a star. Godard was a, a real intellectual celebrity, you know, here in the U.S. Um, but because of his involvement with the Zigavertov group, with his political activism, then with his motorcycle accident, um, he really was off the map for a few years. And you know, people literally did not know what he was up to. Um, but when I, in any case, I had certainly never heard the name, but then I was in such a deep hole of cinematic ignorance that I had never heard of Humphrey Bogart. I mean, I guess I knew the name, but, you know, Humphrey Bogart's face appears in Breathless and Jean-Paul Belmondo stands in front of the image of him and rubs his lips and says, Bogey. I, I didn't know who that was. I'd never seen a movie with Humphrey Bogart. I just envy the experience of watching uh, a Godard movie and just not knowing who he was, you know, that that seems hard to come by. I mean, in, in our circles now. So that's quite wonderful. Well, it's also interesting. You probably this led you to discover who Humphrey Bogart was and investigate like entire new worlds of, <laughs> of culture that yeah, you were just... What a way to discover Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> well, quite literally, because this guy Godard, okay, I'm now obsessed with a guy named Godard, whoever the hell this is. Um and so the next time I passed through the city, which was probably a month later on the way home for Thanksgiving, I stopped at the Coliseum bookstore, which was on 57th Street, and found a book called Godard on Godard, just what I'm looking for. <laughs> and much to my surprise, it was not an autobiography. It was a book of film criticism for the most part. 
So, wow, this guy was a film critic before he was a filmmaker. Not only was he a film critic, but he was obsessed with American films, with Hollywood films, with Hollywood films. Why would anybody be obsessed with Hollywood films? Right. You know, to me, Hollywood was, you know, my parents' stuff. It was, you know, the way I've always described it, to me, it seemed like ambulatory Las Vegas. Right, it was, right. you know, brassy and vulgar and uninteresting. But this guy named Godard was obsessed with some guy named Howard Hawks, whom he called the greatest American artist, not even the greatest American filmmaker, but the greatest American artist. So I had to find out who this was. Mm. So, you know, my, my, my door, so to speak, my gateway drug to classic Hollywood was, in fact, Godard. Yeah, I had a pretty similar one, actually, which is I didn't know who he was when I first saw a movie of his, which was Pierre Lefou. Um, I, you know, I was an insomniac in high school and at some point discovered that Turner Classic Movies existed. Uh, and so I was like becoming familiar with a lot of classic Hollywood stuff because it was on um, and often on at, you know, midnight. And my position was quite similar, like up to that, I liked movies a lot, but movies were, it was the Saturday night thing. Um, you know, I remember seeing like Elf in middle school, like that was the big thing we all went to go see. Uh, and then at like one or two in the morning, some night when I was like 15 or 16, they were playing Pierre LeFou. And up to that point, it was basically, I had seen the contemporary Hollywood stuff and I'd seen some of the classic Hollywood stuff. And then I saw this and was just like stunned. Um, and also like got to the end and I was like, man, this guy's pretty cool. I guess I should see if he made any more movies. <laughs> uh, and had like, I don't know, a very, a very similar thing where he, I, and I think this is why even more than the movies, I think like what has cemented his legacy is he just kept being a gateway for so many different people um, because those movies just like they're voracious and they take in everything. And they make you want to know more. And like Richard, you they, they make you seek out his writing. And then when you get to find his writing, you discover Howard Hawks and you discover the joys of classic Hollywood cinema and everything else. Sorry, Blair, but. No, I mean, it's, you're, you're right. It's the same thing. It's like I, you would catch these little whiffs of it. I mean, I, I think I wrote in the thing. It's like, you know, he started alluding to Faulkner. And at the time, I'd never read anything by Faulkner. And I was like, well, I guess I should. Um, and I think that's like, even the stuff that gets like denser as it goes on, I think the thing he never really lost is how exciting it is to see a voracious mind at work. This is something Richard talks about. Too. You guys both talk about this, this sort of, uh, magpie but like galaxy brain of just bringing all of culture almost to bear on every moment of his work but also the feeling of like witnessing thinking in real time right right you know and uh because for me i actually watched my first good art film in college because i didn't you know arrive at college very cinema literate and really i i almost feel like criticism led me to cinema like I was reading criticism before I was watching movies which was a wonderful way to discover Godard because I saw his work in a class and I I think this was the first film of his that I saw at least the first that I remember was La Chinoise and you know I had already like read like Peter Wallen's famous essay on counter cinema and Godard before so I'd already brought like so much critical baggage that you know, you expect that the films will only fail. But La Chinoise was like a theoretical text in itself. I mean, it was so theoretically, critically dense. And 
at the same time, so sexy and so beautiful to look at and just so heady for like a young person, you know, who is thinking about revolution and and sort of even in within like an academic institution, thinking about all the ways in which institutions fail us. And Blair, you mentioned the scene in your piece and it is the Godard scene. It is like yeah. my Godard scene is... You know, the scene where two lovers are having an argument. It's kind of about love, but it's also kind of about revolution and it's about modes of revolution. And, you know, uh, they demonstrate what it's like to struggle on two fronts simultaneously, to do two things at once, to listen to music and read at the same time. And it was this amazing demonstration, again, of a theoretical idea but using two gorgeous faces and using the language of desire and romance. And so for me, it was this it, it was this idea that cinema could actually do what criticism or writing can do, but with more tools at its disposal. And that's what he sort of came to represent for me, you know? It's exactly that that has like kept him to me so present and so contemporary. It's just like, particularly now, uh, it feels quite frequently like lots of filmmakers and lots of films themselves are like quite ashamed to be caught thinking mm -hmm. and just nothing he did was ever ashamed. I mean, it was like, that was the drive of the thing. And he made thinking, like you said, he made it quite sexy. Like you want, you wanted to be thinking like that. You know, I want Andrea Shemsky to break my heart like that. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it is a thing that's like, I think is hard to maintain and what's like most stunning to me about it is just like cinema isn't that old and for somebody to have got to that point where like the medium is actually doing thought in real time that quickly is just like it's very hard to conceive of compared to any other medium to think like you know half a century into painting painting isn't really doing thought like that yet um and, and he maintained it and developed it yeah he believed that you know that his that he was working in a time of the decline of cinema. Richard, correct me if I'm wrong, right? Like, like he he was kind of after the after the or a fallen. It was a fallen medium, right? As he called it. Not at first. Um, he you know it it kind of fell on his watch. Um, <laughs> and in one interpretation, I mean, there are that's the thing that there's so many ends of cinema in Godard's philosophy. You know, one being when the studio system ended. In the you know in the 60s and you know as he put it we thought we were at the in the golden age and we were actually at the end um you know one is of course the world world war ii crucial dividing line where he asserted later on that the failure of the cinema to document to record to let the world know about the holocaust was in effect the end of cinema the crucial downfall of cinema um but you know the thing about movies thinking, the way that his movies think, I think it's exactly right, but it's not voluntary. I mean, I, I, one of the things about Godard is that it's not as if he set himself out to make an intellectual cinema that thought in real time. Um, you can't will that into being. And when filmmakers try to will it into being, it's all too conspicuous. We see it in, um, you know, what is worst about the world of art films or movies marketed as or positioned as art films. What Godard was using is the simple tools of cinema, namely <clears throat> images and sounds. Sounds could be music, sounds could be sounds, sounds could be words. Images could be images of actors, images could be images of text, images could be images of paintings. If you simply think about the words in there and the tools in their basic sense, 
you open your cinema out away from the ordinary realism that has become um, common coin in both commercial and art cinema to the work of Godard. He simply used what was at hand. Clint, did you did you have a formative Godard experience? You know, I was thinking about this last night because I thought this would be a good opening question kind of way into this material, and I couldn't come up with... A, he seemed to just... I mean, I grew up in rural Colorado where uh, we had a video store where I found, like, The Passenger, I think that was... Like, just I'd, I'd find whatever. I could dig out these dirty old VHS tapes from this video store, and I I think I saw Perot Le Fou, but I don't... Um, and I, I think I saw it there, but I may have seen it later in college. But um, I think for me, he was just part of like uh, an ambiance of engaging art from that era as much as I possibly could where I grew up. And um, to the extent that I could, which was not that much. But later for me, I think what really kind of opened me up to his work and made me really kind of engage it more directly and more consistently was uh seeing uh weekend at film forum i don't remember how old i was i must have been like probably i was older than i probably should have been 20 <laughs> 25 or 26 and i just like i it was just so visceral and so uh angry and coherent mm. and and thoughtful at the same time that uh it really just kind of like was unlike anything I could have imagined. I mean, you know, you hear so much about it. I'd read so much about it. I probably knew this, the, I knew what was coming. I knew each shot that was coming because I read so much about it. But when I saw it, it's just like a totally different thing. And the use of color too, I think was something that really kind of uh, took me by surprise. And then the other movie of his that, uh, that really kind of uh, broke my brain was um, every man for himself. When I, when I finally was able to see that, um, was just so beautiful those shots of the rolling hills i just remember the the greens in those shots and the road that like yeah i just that i think that that film really kind of um remade the way that i thought mm. about Godard's work. that's something i like very much uh in blair in your piece where your, your emphasis on the um the importance of beauty in godard's work um i mean he started as a painter I mean, he, he actually had an art exhibit, you know, in, in the late 40s. Um, visual beauty was, you know, very much in his intellectual DNA. And his idea of it changed throughout his career. And in my opinion, it was amplified greatly in his, in, in his later years. Yeah. Yeah, I've always sort of thought that he gets like a bit short shrift for that. I think because he is so affiliated with like the question of montage as a way to produce meaning in it. And like, yes, obviously. Uh, but as a result, I think it has really given him short shift on just like you watch, you pull these frames from across his career and you're just like, oh no, this is a painter thinking. Like, I mean, the image book is just like <laughs> color. I mean, yeah. I mean, you look like any of this, like watching what he does across like video and digital, you're just like, oh, this is one of the few people actually asking like, what is sensual about this mm -hmm. medium? Mm -hmm. um, in a way that like, I've always, you know, I, I am a partisan of shooting on film, but part of it is mostly just because I'm like, well, quite frequently when you shoot digitally, nobody's actually asking the question of what is it that digital does? Um, which, you know, I get for 
some money reasons sometimes, but I think that is the, like one of the things that's so noticeable in, you know, his return to cinema or whatever, but like as he carries along throughout it is he just really was working very hard on like, how do you create a central frame out of videotape or out of, you know, electrons. And it's, it's interesting because it's often just his period in exile in the seventies or whatever you want to call it. Um, is often described as like a period of experimentation where I've always imagined him like in a laboratory in Switzerland with (laughs) video cameras, just like shooting an apple or something and then like playing with the color and playing with the, I mean, and Richard, maybe you can like describe that experimentation with video and what that actually entailed. Well, his experimentation started even before that. I mean, he, he basically entered the laboratory with, uh, with Jean-Pierre Gorin in the late 1960s. Um, you know, there, were, there was a period in France around 1969 or 70 where a journalist actually said, you know, we don't know where he is. <laughs> like we haven't, we haven't got word from him in a year. Um, you know, there was a Zygovertov group, but it was primarily Godard and Gorin. Gorin was a journalist was a literary critic at Le Monde when, they, when the two of them got together. And the point of connection was um, affiliation with, with Maoists. Um, you know, Godard had to go out to meet Maoists. It's not like they were in his, you know, in his circle of friends. Um, he actually, you know, there was an arranged dinner to meet Maoists and, you know, Gohan was there and they hit it off. Um, but, you know, the two of them basically spent time in, you know, in a, in a room experimenting cinematically experimenting literally, like trying to imitate images from a film by Eisenstein, and then experimenting intellectually, just rummaging through the history of cinema to see what it was in fact that they were, that what they were talking about when they were talking about cinema, like what the what the history of it was in relation to what the what the practice was and in relation to what the ideas were. And you know, the roots of Histoire du Cinema, the roots of all of Godard's later work in the history of cinema in the most personal sense, comes from his you know, laboratory work with, with, with Gorin. Um, and I find, in fact, I, to, you know, to, to my mind, the beauty, and he was also very interested in, in video, by the way, he picked up a you know, quarter pack video in the late 60s, but like those great effects in every man for himself, the, those you know, slow motion effects, he worked them out on video. He did them in video and then was very disappointed not to be able to transfer them directly to film. Like he couldn't copy them to film. The technology didn't exist properly. So he actually had to like recreate them frame by frame in film. But you know, for me, the, the beauty of his later film, you know, starting with every man for himself onward, is a different kind of beauty from the beauty in his films of the 60s in precisely this sense, namely that the films of the 60s, they're kind of, I don't mean this in a negative way, but they're kind of unanchored beauty, a kind of spontaneous or freely created beauty that had its references to maybe individual shots, maybe to individual moments, maybe to individual directors, maybe individual paintings, but without a theoretical basis. Whereas the intellectual reconstruction of the cinema that he had begun with Gorin in the late 60s resulted in a fairly comprehensive, although still growing theory of the history of cinema that actually was the undercurrent, sort of the the framework for his, everything he did from everything, every, every man for himself on, including the visual compositions. It's almost like he, his earlier films were all superstructure with minimal substructure. And he actually had a huge you know, intellectual infrastructure under each image from that point on. 
you know, I think Godard's films were also one of my early confrontations with the idea that cinematic beauty didn't have to mean classical beauty. You know, I you you grow up reading and thinking about cinema in a way that you start equating that aesthetic percep- perfection with this classical Hollywood style of seamlessness and continuity and that kind of beauty. And, you know, often Godard's movies are talked about in terms of unpleasure or like breaking the spell, you know, this Brechtian kind of estrangement and breaking the spell of narrative or classical cinema and and bringing the viewer in. But even something like uh, Tuva Vien, which is, you know, it, it really foregrounding the making of the film so fragmented on a compositional level, I remember thinking, but this is stunning. I mean, I, I could actually lose myself in these images. They they do exert a kind of aesthetic spell on me, even as they are, uh, you know, changing what I think of as a beautiful classical composition. And so that that was a very strong, again, like early association of mine with his work. Uh, but Richard, I'm curious if you could say a little more about what you think was that intellectual infrastructure uh, or the influ- in, in, paradigm, I guess, that you feel guided his approach towards cinema and beauty in cinema, you know, from the late 60s onwards with Goran. Um, in, okay. one, in one to two words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it. I mean, I think it. I think it actually had several different axes. One being, to use an overused word, political. Like you know, excavating the implicit, let's say, ideology or the ideas in the history of cinema that informed him. The other part of it is the fact that it informed him. That it was essentially you know psychoanalytical. That there was a a, a a way that these images arouse desire, um, and he wanted to explore what that was. Um, and then, I think the third dimension is, and even though he was, you know, a man of, as he always said, images and sounds, the image holds priority. The image is a almost a, an object of a virtually religious cult for him. And you know the history of images themselves. You know, we talked about Godard as a painter. Godard as a painter was actually really interested in the history of art. Um, and he began to take very seriously the relationship of the cinematic image to, you know, Rembrandt, to classical. You know, there, there are all these references scattered in the films of the 60s, which then really coalesce more in the films of the, you know, 80s, 90s, and onward, um, where he actually was trying to make images that didn't just wink at the history of art, but actually took their place alongside of it. I think I'm one of the few partisans of Komostova, but uh, I've always sort of felt like the two big shifts for me in my understanding of his conception of Komostova and passion um, and Komosova, because it's just like, if I could have, I taught editing once for a little while, and I think if I could have gotten away with it, I would have just, my class would have been, let's just watch this movie, and then you'll figure it out by the end of the movie. Um, but in, like, that movie is such serious attention to, like, what is an image, and what is a political image, and, like, not just in the sense that it represents politics, but what political work is it doing? It just feels, like, so 
it is a much more mature understanding than I think the things he was working through in the 60s, um, even though it's like a less directly pleasurable watch than this stuff in the 60s. But in the course of that investigation of that, which like this gets back to the thinking in real time, by the end of that movie, you're sort of like, oh, this guy's made a leap forward. He's like actually really sort of pinned down like what about an image makes it become the thing that represents something? And what about that image makes it now do a kind of political work? And then by the time you get to passion, which I think like on the surface has kind of stepped, you know, sort of to the left, not left, stepped at it, <laughs> stepped away from that. To the side. To the, the side. side. <laughs> no, no right or left, just to the side. Right. Uh, what is like so stunning about that to me is you, you get, you get this line in writing a lot about like, you know, the movie looks like a painting. There's like something here that looks like a painting, but to like quite literally force some of the most famous Western paintings to submit to the image of cinema is just like both incredibly arrogant and also incredibly exciting, um, which to me is just like, you know, it's passion is the one that's like, it's so easy to see where you get there from his work in the 60s and also feels impossible to see how you get there when you have like, I, I, you put it really well earlier where it's like, it's sort of an unanchored beauty in the 60s. And suddenly, you know, by the 80s, he's really subsuming like Western art into cinema rather than the other way around of like cinema knocking at the door of Western art and being allowed in. One of his great theoretical videos, so to speak, he actually, you know, regarding what you say about passion, he shows his work in the most literal sense, because there's a remarkable video called Scénario du film Passion, scenario, the screenplay of the film Passion, in which Godard is in the studio, essentially telling you exactly what it was that he was telling and showing. And it's a, it's a film that's simultaneously of discourse, images, and performance. You know, the, the, the demiurge comes out from behind the curtain and actually shows you in a virtually priestly way and here is the cinema and he shows you exactly where you know the cinema comes from in his research toward passion you know it's funny you should mention comment ça va blair just because serge danet is in the news right yeah. now as he as long in a long overdue way because of the publication of the cinema house and the world in in, in in translation you know i saw that film thanks to serge danet in 1977, when he came to New York for the first KD Cinema Week at the Bleecker Street Cinema. And among the other, among what he showed was the three recent films by Godard and Nieville, Here and Elsewhere, Numero Deux, and Comment Ça Va. And I remember, I mean, I was there. And I, I, didn't, I wasn't there for Danae's presentation, but I saw the films there. And I remember thinking at the time that, you know, Comment Ça Va was the one. Not that there was anything wrong with the other two films, on the contrary, but that Comment Ça Va was the one that, I mean, I've been watching a whole bunch of Godard from 1975 to the fall of 1977. And to me, that was the one that, you know, both connected up more clearly with the films of the 60s and went further. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is brought to you by Ovid. IndieWire recently called Ovid an increasingly essential streaming service that's perfect for cinephiles determined to create their own canon. Ovid's collection is hand-curated by human beings, never an algorithm, with films and series you won't find anywhere else. This month, Ovid is offering exclusive access to three key films by Marcel Ophels, Costa Gavras's seldom-seen Eden is West, and the largest collection of independent films from mainland China and Hong Kong. With films from directors like Chantal Ackerman, Charles Burnett, Alexander Rockwell, and Ira Sachs. Ovid invites you to look at life through a different lens. 
From now until September 30th, go to ovid.tv, that's O-V-I-D dot TV, and use the code SEPT, that's S-E-P-T, for a free seven-day trial and 50% off a year's membership. I think you said something like this in your piece, Richard. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but something about Godard really being an artist of the present at all times. And I was having this conversation with with someone who saw Band of Outsiders uh, when it was showing at Film Forum, and they, they hadn't seen a lot of Godard, but they were just saying, oh, it feels kind of a little dated. And I, I, I was kind of ruminating on that word as it applies to Godard's work, which... I think Isn't it what, from 1964? Yes, right? but but you know, I think the, this person was were saying that uh, you know a lot like this has been done since, and there are a lot of other films in that series that you know that still retain a kind of originality and freshness. Um, but you know that particular comment is not that important. Rather, that it made me think that what I actually have admired about his work over the years is that. He doesn't, even though his his works have endured, he his films never seem concerned with posterity. I mean, they really are grappling with what cinema means in a given moment, in a given historical and political moment. What does it mean to be a filmmaker and work with images? How are images tools for this moment? And I think that it's very different from the kind of timeliness that you think of as like topical or zeitgeisty. It's like a real... You know, this it's it's in a way, um, you know, self-effacing in in the face of something more important, which is what am I putting out? You know, how am I engaging with the moment rather than how am I making like a work that will transcend time? It reminds me something of something from the uh, Dunny the Dunny book, which is uh, he says something like cinephilia is a uh, a way of looking at is a, is a relationship with the world through cinema rather than an an obsession with cinema as sort of a mm-hmm. fetish object. I'm I remember you know just speaking off the cuff, but I think of of the way that you're describing this that because you know Godard's work is an engagement with the world rather than an engagement with cinema as sort of a as a fetish object. No, I think you know I mean I think that Dane's perspective is different from Godard's because they're from a different generation. Sure, um, sure. Because their the background is different. Um, you know, one of the most interesting things for me about Godard's relationship, or the relationship between cinemaphilia and the world in Godard, is how it manifests itself politically in the early mm-hmm. part of his career. I mean, Godard was a man of the right yeah, in his right. youth, um, and and he, you know, he says he basically knew nothing about politics, which I guess I believe him. But what he <laughs> did know, um, what his inclinations were were, you know, were often on the, Ill, you know, on the, on the right, uh, on the right, um, as was, you know, that of other people in the Cahiers circle. Yeah. Um, and when Breathless came out, you know, he was attacked from the left for being a, you know, a right-wing anarchist, which is an odd French hybrid, um, but, you know, sort of a libertarian. And Le Petit Soldat, even though it deals with the Algerian war, it deals with it from the perspective of, you know, Algerian sympathizers practicing torture and from the perspective of somebody who's working for, you know, for the, you know, French espionage against the Algerian war. But it's in the course of making films that Godard's politics shifted in the early 60s. And I think that he essentially came to realize very soon that the kind of artistic progress that 
he admired, inevitably had to go hand in hand with a political sensibility that also was progressive, not at the time Marxist. He was not a, certainly not a you know, communist and the socialists didn't really exist in France at the time, but you know, on the left in general. He discovered leftism through cinema. He didn't discover it through research. He didn't discover it from you know, reading politics. He discovered it from the experience of trying to make the kinds of films he was trying to make and realizing who he was opposing, who was hostile to it. In addition to that, the thing that speaks well to him in sort of what you were doing about like his constant engagement with the world, you know, I mean, to put it like bluntly, he knew which way the wind was blowing. And I think it's not even a question of like, did he become, you know, the most intellectually profound Marxist in France? Because no, uh, mm. but, but he was, This is, and this is a thing that I don't think is true of all filmmakers, much less even all great ones. He seemed like at each stage, extremely perceptive about, you know, there being something in the water. It's why one of the reasons I've like always loved Flesh and Blood is it's just like, it is so perceptive about there being something happening amongst these young radicals in France. And it's like, no, he doesn't quite nail, like he doesn't actually predict what's about to happen in France. But if there is like a knock I frequently have around various cinemas, it is often, you know, the one I always say here is, if you watched the last 20 years of cinema in America, you could avoid knowing the Iraq war ever happened. Um, and that's just like not actually true of him. And it's, it's it, I've always think about this piece of that too, because of, he's not actually on the left yet, but he also is too interested, too engaged to ignore the thing, such that even though he's a man on the right, he winds up getting the movie banned. <laughs> like he was just too engaged with the questions at hand. And I think it's, I don't know, when I think of like what makes somebody capable of being a contemporary across all that time, it is just, it's, I mean, maybe it's counterintuitive, but it, like it is his constant engagement with the history that brought you to that moment, rather than sort of a fleeting topical question about like, well, what just happened yesterday? Right. One of the things about La Chinoise is how skeptical he is about yes. the Maoists <laughs> and their revolutionary project. Yeah. But I think particularly Western Maoists and their project too, right? I mean, more broadly too, but... Well, he didn't know any other kind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was hard, it was hard to meet Mao at the time. <laughs> no, no, but I, I, the reason I mentioned that is what I was going to say is, like, I encountered the film already being aware of a tradition of, like, Maoist cinema and art from India, for instance. And, you know, and um, so... It was very interesting for me for that to be my first Godard film. It was, I mean, not really, but it was kind of in cinema, my first encounter with Western Maoists and like even understanding that there were people, you know, in, in Europe fetishizing Maoism in this way, which, which you know, I'd already kind of grown up with familiarity with that tradition. And something that, you know, I, I love about that film is it that it's both, it is kind of critiquing the idealism, this kind of and and fetishization, almost aesthetic fetish, fetish, fetishization of a politics by by these young, you know, French people. But at the same time, it has a a regard, a sincere kind of regard. It's kind of what you're saying, Blair. I mean, they are, but at the same time, they are they care. I mean, they're engaged. They are so engaged despite of their despite their illusions. You know, there's a kind of sincere regard for that. There is some value to being 
to struggle even if you don't fully know who your opponents are to that position of struggle you know to that that allowing your life to be defined by that but something i was going to ask both of you is is i guess something that has uh, occasionally bothered me about the way godard is discussed is this i wouldn't i don't know if it's an overstatement but a a a discussion of his radicalism and the the radicalism radicalism of his cinema in a way that does you know uh make it seem almost more significant than all these legacies of actually radical cinema especially you know coming from the global south and i've i've often been sort of frustrated by that but at the same time found his cinema to be really internationalist and embrace you know embrace those other legacies too and uh i i i'm just curious about both of your approaches to that question and and your own relationship to to the way his films are talked about politically i i mean it's it's sort of what i tried to to say in that thing is that i think like the importance of godard's radicalism beyond wherever i might like agree with him this is sort of a more boring thing but it is directly related to that he was a star and that it is very hard to produce stars <laughs> who are willing to engage in that kind of radicalism and i think he says he says at some various points like you know i'm leveraging my celebrity in order to make these films that are no yeah, one else he... would allow mm. you know yeah. no fund otherwise the, the person who always like comes to mind is just that i'm like well med honda just went further than this dude like he constantly was going further than this dude <laughs> And as much as I love Mehando and love all those movies, he was never a star like an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't really structurally possible for him to be a star like right. that. Um, and so I, I think it's a bit of two things, you know, I think he does face a lot of people who like are worth engaging with and worth thinking about. I think it's a, the double-edged sword of that is the thing we were talking about at the beginning. Like he is a gateway drug. And mm-hmm. so the, the way he leveraged his stardom I think does also open, you know, I mean, I, there's lots of way more radical cinema that I mostly know about because I was obsessed with him. Um, But I think it's, it's a bit tough because I think it's like, anytime you start saying like, anytime you start treating any kind of star as an authority on radicalism, you're going to wind up somewhere quite sad, quite fast. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, it's, it, his great work was as an artist, not a revolutionary. I, he wasn't a great revolutionary. As far as I know, he didn't commit any of the assassinations that sometimes pop up in his movies. Um, as far as we know. As, as far, far as, as we, we know. know. <laughs> he effaces those things and he effaces them because he's the, in some ways also because of the reasons that they work, which is like, they're not so far that they are totally unintelligible, which is why I've always been like a defender even of the 70s stuff, which is just that I'm like, if you really want something unintelligible, I can show it to you. And it's not this stuff. Uh, and you know, I mean, it's, that's the thing. He was like, no matter how radical he got, like the man loved 40s American movies like, and it pops up everywhere. You just, you can't get that far away from it. Just fine. I love them too. <laughs> One of the other films that really stuck with me that an early encounter, like in college, I saw uh, Sympathy for the Devil or uh, One Plus One. I think it was called Sympathy for the Devil, the version that I saw, because I was like, oh, cool. The Rolling Stones <laughs> in the studio, like this is going to be really cool. And then there's these, you know, extended <laughs> shots of, of uh, you know, people reading Eldridge Cleaver and like, and I had never encountered that material before. And so I was like, what is this? Like, this is totally, this is unbelievable. And I, and I think, you know, this is the gateway <laughs> drug aspect, but also this collage element here is the, of the pop of Sympathy for the Devil, which also, uh, you know, 
excavates the whatever small amount of political content exists in that in sympathy for the devil is song and in the rolling stones like presence i don't know there's it's an interesting uh, uh association that that was brought up by blur's comment but the thing about Godard's radicalism is that he paid for it. And I don't mean with money. I mean, he paid for it with his, with his life. He paid for it with his stardom. I mean, is in, in a way, his radicalism, by not making films like, you know, Z, by, make, by doing what he did, by withdrawing from the film industry, he didn't withdraw from film, but he withdrew from the film industry by working with the Zygovertov group, with, by making, you know, strictly militant films for a few years, was a kind of professional and intellectual suicide. I mean, not to trivialize the term. But you know, that scene, one of the things, look, we were talking about La Chinoise, you know, the scene of the doing two things at once involves Schubert, right? That's a Schubert sonata. There's this great scene in that film where, you know, he, the, the names of, the, of classical Western artists are erased from the blackboard. That is what it meant for Godard to be a radical. He was erasing his intellectual, artistic, and personal cultural heritage. He essentially effaced his name from publicity. He effaced his he effaced his ability to go out and get money from producers. He didn't leverage his celebrity. He, he, he erased his celebrity. He paid very heavily for his radicalism. And that to me is one of the most moving things about them that he, you know, there's this phrase that he often, you know, uses about returning to zero. He went below zero. <laughs> he had to climb back up to get to zero. And one of the things that I love about the films of the, we were talking about the films of the 70s, his videos of the 70s, his television work of the 1970s radicalizes television, you know, aesthetically and conceptually. Um, I think that C. Froideux is one of his great creations. But, you know, to actually get back to where he could make a feature film, it was, a, and where he wanted to do so, and where he had the, you know, intellectual and emotional architecture to do so. It was a long, hard road. Mm. Well, Richard, actually, if we could go back, you know, I this is a very broad question, and uh, you're you might be mad at me for asking, putting you on the spot, but like, why did he become a star? I mean, we all know, we all know the impact that Breathless had that moment in French cinema, but why him, and how him? I think for two very simple reasons. One is that he had something of an actor in him. Mm -hmm. He always had that temperament. Look, he was the star of a film that Eric Romer made in 1950-51, Présentation, which is a wonderful little film, by the way. But, you know, people who knew Godard back then said he was already a, like, not a character, like a character, like a, like a movie character, like his, he came... He wasn't the only one in the group. You know, he came from money. He, he was actually really poor because he had walked away from the money, but he still had, like, better clothing. <laughs> that was wearing out. Um, he, he just had a, he had something about him. There was something charismatic and actorly about him. That's one thing. In a, pra in a practical sense, his personality, his, you know, he's, he, he's, he's smart and funny. He talks really well. And that got him very far. At the same time, I believe that he realized very quickly in his career that he was going to make an awful lot of movies that didn't make an awful lot of money. And therefore, if the movies weren't going to make money, he had to have a name that ran out in front of them, that he needed to put himself in front of the films in order to continue to be able to make films. Which is very prescient at the time, though. I mean, yeah. there weren't a, there that was not there wasn't a model for him to follow in that regard. Godard is a master of media. Yeah. 
he's always been a master of media. He, under, he, he was always interested in the functioning of media and of the cinema as, you know, that was one of the things that, you know, nourished his work in, in later years. The cinema, not just as an art form, but as a part of the media establishment. I always think that one of the best performers in Godard's body work is just Godard. Like, he just knows how to make things move forward. And like, his aphorisms are great, but it's just like anybody who's quotable, you know, thinking of somebody who thinks about the distribution of materials, it's like anybody who is quotable is guaranteeing that you will be thinking about them. Um, which I always think about like when he started going on how much he hates Spielberg. Um, and like, I believe him. I firmly believe that he believes every word he said about Spielberg. And, you know, it's like Film Comet just re-ran that um, interview with him from the 90s. And what's really funny in that interview is the question's asked like once, and he just keeps bringing it back keeps, up throughout the whole interview. Keeps going back and on But it's just Spielberg, like, yeah. this man's not dumb. Like, Godard saying Spielberg isn't an intelligent man is guaranteeing well, he, he says, he a discussion of that intelligent. Not that intelligent. <laughs> like, you're, but you're guaranteeing that there will be a discourse that is anchored in you and in your position. So you're saying he was a troll before Twitter trolls became a I mean, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> but, I, but he was a troll that was actually like dedicated to a position. Yeah, he yeah, just yeah. Knew yeah, he's doing something more work. than trolling there. Like he wasn't just he's... trying to upset people, but he was also no, no, he was no. a master yeah. of media. Yeah. He's a master of media. And also he comes from a tradition of conflict. I mean, he, mm. you know, he comes from a, he comes from a, you know, this is, he comes from a very hard nosed time. You know, public debate was really, Look, you read the polemics in Cahiers du Cinéma in the 1950s. Nobody would write like that. Critics now. actually went at each other, and for intellectual reasons too. I mean, you know, they they took criticism and intellectualism personally. That's what you can, and you know, a lot of his sort of sniping often. I I regard it with admiration for that reason. It just he took it that seriously. I mean, do you think that the fact that his that his uh, a lot of his work was explicitly kind of autobiographical and or you had kind of lead actors dressed like him you know <laughs> in a lot of even in even in early on i think that you know he was very aware of making himself kind of the the star of the of his work i don't know Richard, right and he was, was well aware you know on the one hand his celebrity weighed on him heavily and on the other hand he was well aware that it was only because of that celebrity that he could walk into a producer's office and get money for a film mm -hmm. I think a lot of you you make this comparison in your piece, Richard, but the Bob Dylan comparison I think is is yeah. kind of apt in that he was doing something nobody else had really done before, mm -hmm. and kind of uh, also that immediacy of just like a brain working is is kind of also an analogy that works. But also, Richard, you say that Godard made that comparison, like he likened yeah, himself, yeah. right? Which which I thought was interesting. Like he likened mm -hmm. his own career to <laughs> Bob Dylan's. And this was in mm -hmm. like what what this was early mid sixties, right? Yeah, late well, late sixties, early seventies, yeah. Okay. Late sixties. Yeah. No, he actually said, you know, when Dylan had the motorcycle accident, he said, That's gonna happen to me too. <laughs> one of the few one of the few like you know, idolizers of Bob Dylan who can like live up to the <laughs> I'm just like live Bob. up to the comparison. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I, I wanted to talk about was a very interesting uh, sentence in your essay, Blair, which which really, I think, nailed it for me, which is that you said that he made cinema for class traitors mm -hmm. and not working class cinema, and that that was his gift. I mean, that was his genius. And I think that, you know, I do think that that describes the appeal of many of his films to me personally, mm -hmm. and I'm I'm sure to many of us, which is 
uh, which is again going back to what I was saying, what Lashin was, it is kind of this romanticization and mourning of a kind of loss of idealism, but but also uh, uh, there's a sincerity to it. And uh, but at, at the same time, I do also want to like maybe question you a little bit, and maybe Richard, you you have something to say here. I mean, what is well, working class cinema and, in this paradigm? And it always just to and it always I always thought like you know Truffaut was working class, grew up poor, it was working class, and moved in a different direction mm -hmm. towards something totally different. And Godard always seemed to have this freedom. And, uh, you know, part of me always wondered, is the freedom because he, it comes from wealth. Yeah. yeah you know, grow does, up with precarity. And so, you know, Truffaut has to, it realizes he has to make a popular cinema in order to continue to do his work. So, he, I, you know, this is a speculation. But uh, Richard, I don't know if you... Yeah, you know, there's that line of Picasso's that he wanted to live like a poor man, but with a lot of money. Right. <laughs> That's the dream. Um, you know, the thing about Godard same, and same. work, the thing about Godard and work is that, you know, he, of course, he was not working class. Um, he, he, he was well aware of it. Um, but for him, the, the idea of work meant doing work. It meant you touch the film, it means you edit the film, it means you think about what you're doing. It means you sit with the actors it, and work meant work. It, it wasn't, you know, it, it you know, what, what it, he, he was obsessed with the gestures of factory workers. In fact, that's the very, we talked about Sifwada. The very first episode of Sifwada is an inter, is, is set in an unemployment office where Godard is interviewing workers about their work and essentially likening the work that workers do with their hands in a factory to the work that filmmakers do. One of the things that Godard did from the beginning of the film, and one of the things that I think is a great lesson, even beyond the images and the sounds of his films, is the practice of cinema. Like Godard is the living, eternally living proof that, you know, 90% of direction is production. In other words, that before you think about what image you want to make, before you think about what story you want to make, you have to think about the money, you have to think about the administration. You have to think about the use of time. You have to think about the administrative process of making films. And that if you are a, you know, if you think, if you personalize the process, if you, if you create a process, the, the movie will come out of that process. So that's the big fight on Breathless, you know, where he didn't want to shoot an eight hour day. He said, what's the difference if I, you know, I've, I've, I've shot the material. What's the difference if I can shoot it in two hours and use the other six hours to just sit and think? He ended up in a fistfight with his producer as a result, but that was the, the that was the battle of his career. For Godard, becoming a producer, you know, a lot of directors become producers nominally, but for Godard, what it meant to become a producer was actually to administer his shoot, to decide how, when, and where he was going to shoot, how the money was going to get used, what is going to what what is going to be spent on. So you know, half the budget in um, a film that I really loved, uh, Keep Your Right Up, was spent on you know those 10, 10 minutes of footage. In an airplane, he spent half of his budget flying back and forth in order to film in a real flight rather than in an airplane on the ground. And he didn't have a producer to tell him, no, that's how he wanted to work. Top Gun had nothing on him, <laughs> let's just say. <laughs> Cinema is so effective at romanticizing itself uh, that if you like haven't thought very hard about it or haven't worked on them, it's like really hard to realize that actually what making a movie is is office work and manual labor. And then there's like, 12 minutes of like plasticity and then you go back to office work and manual labor. Uh, 
and I think he did like he that is in his showing his work like that is the thing that he really sort of brought to the fore even though something like contempt is also interested in the romance of it uh but I, I think to sort of your question about like class traders and working class cinema um I'm gonna cheat a little bit which is that like to the question of whether or not I think there's a working class cinema I would say mostly no um because I just think that like the mechanisms by which you create and distribute a film. You know, I mean, this goes to his make a film politically thing. In most occasions, like the moment you are doing that, you have actually already prevented making something that might be working class cinema. That being said, I mean, not that it doesn't happen now and again, though I think the things that are like very hard to see. Um, I think what's like alluring from him, you know, I, I think about him a lot, uh, how I think about Thomas Mann, which is like people who came from wealth but did not lose the capacity to see the world they were in. Um, and I do think that happens to a lot of people who come from wealth. Uh, you know, I mean, like, Buddenbrooks is a great novel because he can see how absurd dynastic German wealth is and it's not it's not like a screaming match against it because it's like it's quite it's quite passionate it's quite tender these are it's his family but he is not so lost in it that he can't see it and I think like that's that is where you reach something very exciting and Godard was not he was not the street kid Maoist and like you know if you compare something like Tuvian to Kubarku it's like very clearly Kubarku made a like a harder effort to engage with the workers but what Godard was offering was, you know, he like he stood between those worlds and was capable of seeing both of them. And I think and he indicts himself rare. in that he indicts himself in his yeah. Background, I think I think he's 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 throughout his career he's he's uh, self self aware as and very Nouvelle Vague the undistributed Nouvelle Vague. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's a work of a work about the you know the industrial world and the cinema, and in the end they have to drive away. They have to drive away from the mansion. They have to drive away from the villa. Mm -hmm. I mean, and you see something like here and elsewhere where it's like, I don't know, the documentary world right now is like consumed with the question of what do you do with subjects in a way that I find kind of tiresome. But I just think, think about that one and think about who would be willing to say, okay, I'm working with these subjects. All of these people have died now. Um, and not just how do I keep making it, but like to actually then reflect upon what was this project to begin with? What did I think I was doing? And like, what's very exciting to me about that movie is that he recognizes something I think a lot of filmmakers working documentary still can't, which is like, you can't bridge that gap with the subjects. You are doing something else entirely differently. And he uses it to indict himself, but he doesn't, you know, it's not, oh, woe is me, everything sucks, because he still thinks that's a productive tension. Right, like a display of guilt. Yeah, Yeah, like the, like Mon, you know, it ends with like this looming fascism, but, but in Brooks, but, but you, know, that, you know, he's just describing his own family history at the same time. You know, we are, we are at the end of the hour, and I think we've, we've covered all the ground that is possible to cover in an hour with Godard, and we could talk forever. But I did want to ask, Richard, as, as a last question, you're the only one amongst us, as far as I know, who has met Godard, unless Blair, you've secretly I didn't met secretly. him. I didn't secretly. I thought about okay. it. I knew where he lived, but I didn't go. 
Okay. Uh, but you know, you're, you, you've spent some time with him. You profiled him, uh, in 2000, which is, uh, and you know, you, you had dinner with him, I, which was quite interesting to read about. And you said that actually that's the memory that really is enduring for you more so than anything else, uh, how he was in person. And maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your encounter with him and what surprised you and what has stayed with you. Mm. It's a funny thing about, 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 journalism and profiles. When I was, you know, asked to write the profile, um, it, it, you know, it entailed interviewing him, meeting him. And I understood that from a pers professional perspective, you know, it was essential. From a personal perspective, it was inessential. Like I never felt the desire to meet Godard. I was, you know, I'd been obsessed with his, you know, films since I was a teenager. That was 25 years, but I had never actually said, gee, if only I could meet Godard. I had his films. That was really all I needed. He was warm, gracious, funny, um, extremely frank, extremely sincere. Um, when he speaks, he really speaks. It's like you, you feel that he's the nerve endings are very raw. It's very, very personal. Just the way you would say his cinema is personal, like there's no ceremonial side to Godard. An interview with Godard is, I wouldn't say, you know, it's not a conversation, but it's, you know, it's an experience for him. He's really talking with you. Is it a performance to, too, or not? I, there are certainly performances. He knows when he wants to perform and you can tell, but he's, you know, weirdly unguarded. Um, he was, you know, the day was not planned. The only plan was for a three hour interview day one and then a shorter interview the next day. Um, but then he invited me to watch some videos that, of things that had not yet been released, like The Old Place, for instance, the film about the video about MoMA. We watched, we stood around in the studio and then, you know, I was gonna leave and he said, you wanna have dinner? And you know, we we ate at a place that he at, actually the the um the outdoor cafe of the hotel where I was staying, which was right near his office. And apparently, he ate there very often, and he always ordered the same thing, and he always drank the same thing. The waiters told me. Um, uh -huh. I interviewed the waiters. Um, <laughs> um, he was a regular there. Um, and we talked about the food. You know, he recommended a certain kind of coffee there, and he told me that the tagliatelle he ate were very good, and he recommended them. And you know, the, the funny thing is that the, I'm telling a long story that I don't really want to tell, but I'll tell it, which is, it's a, I wrote about this and it's been very, it's been unfortunately misunderstood. You know, then we ended the conversation that night. He left the moment before I did, you know, I was paying. Um, money is always, you know, with go to us. I was paying since he was my guest. I was there on, you know, expense account and to see you in the morning, basically. So he left and I paid and I went back to my hotel. And the next morning I show up at his office and the curtain is pulled and there's a note on the door addressed to me and I open it and it, you know, it said basically this wasn't a conversation or this isn't, this isn't a conversation. I can't remember the exact wording. Um, I know who you'll be meeting in, he had, I'd mentioned who I was gonna be meeting in Paris, you know, better luck with them, with one of these people likely, with one of these people unlikely. <laughs> and I wrote him a note back saying, when Gérard Depardieu was scheduled to work with you for six weeks on Elas pour moi, and he left the set after three, you were upset, not because of what it meant for you personally, but because of the work. I said, I don't, 
mind that you're not here for me personally, but we had a I came here with a job to do and you're part of that job and you're not here for the second day. But I was not angry with him, on the contrary. Um, one of the things that I came to recognize, I probably already sensed it, but a lot of talk has crystallized around his non-appearance at the end of Agnes Varda's Faces Places. Um, and to me, that made perfect sense. When Godard was talking to me, I, you know, I, I have no illusions that he had any interest in me personally. Just the fact that there was a person, look, the performance was in the fact that he was talking to me. Why? Because nobody knew in, in the year 2000 that Godard was working. People in the United States literally thought he had died. He had not had a film released in many years. You know, the, the failure of King Lear was basically the failure of Godard's career for the time being. Nouvelle Vague remains undistributed. Vincent Canby wrote this Assassin's Review in the New York Times when it was shown at the New York Film Festival. And he wasn't the only one. Godard's career was dead. His performance is that he was working on Eloge de l'Amour. He, he knew perfectly well that this was a major film in his career. He wanted to resurface. When he was contacted by the New Yorker, he was resurfacing in the New Yorker. He was not resurfacing through me. I was the mere you know, vessel. I have no illusions. Um, but the fact of his appearance, of his participation, was the performance. Once I showed up, there was no performance. There was a person sitting across the table from him who expressed interest in his films and wanted to know more about his work and about his life. And he took that very seriously. When I saw Faces Places, I understood immediately why he didn't show up. He loved her. I mean, he really did love her. They were dear friends at one point in their lives. They saw each other all the time in the early 60s. You know, he, he and Anna Karina and Varda and Jacques Demy, you know, used to have lunch together, used to spend weekends together for years. The difference between, among the many differences between them, is that Varda is an open kind of cheerful, optimistic person who embraces warmly her past, her life, the people in her life. I have the sense that Godard is consumed with regret, that when he thinks back to, you know, his, his lunches with Demi and Varda in 1961, he's remembering the times he was an ass. He was remembering the times someone else was an ass. He was remembering all the things he should have said. He was remembering all the things that weren't done. He was remembering the fact that they didn't make a film together or you know, be beyond you know, the, the short film in, in, um, in Cleo from five to seven, that he's consumed with regret that coming downstairs to talk with Agnès Varda would have cost him two weeks. He would have dwelled on that encounter for two weeks. Every word said, every glance would have obsessed him. He didn't have the two weeks to spend. He didn't have the emotional energy to spend, already considering it, already the fact of the invitation already sent him off on a loop. Now, obviously I'm psychologizing here. I don't know that this is the truth, but I believe it's consistent with his behavior and for that matter, consistent with his work, consistent with his relationship to the past, to his personal past in his work. He didn't come down for the second day because he, it already disturbed him. It already knocked him out of his orbit. The fact that we spent one day together. He was a charming person who invited me to dinner, and I'm sure he regretted it. 
not I, I hope not because of anything he talked about or because I talked about you know he talked a little bit about his past there whatever he said about his past at that dinner I'm sure he went home very bothered by it not by what he said but by everything that came up he was a man who lived extremely intensely in the moment and the moment was as intense in his films as it was in his life and he had had a much more intense experience with me, not because of my personality at all, but just because of the fact of having his space penetrated by an outsider than I had with him, as intense as my experience was. I think, you know, and his work is nothing if not like analytical and relentlessly analytical. More than analytical, his work is his work is at the life of the emotion of the moment. I mean, we talked about the immediacy of his work. You know, he films the same way. He films with that weight of the world in every image. You know, we talked about his working, his working class cinema. He was obsessed with the idea of holding the camera, putting his hand on the camera, having a camera with him at all times in order to be able to film whenever he wanted to film, the same way that a writer could jot down something or a painter could jot something in a sketchbook. You know, the, the power of the moment was overwhelming for him. The power of immediacy is what he pursued in his work. And he lived with that level of intensity, and you can't fabricate it in your work. If you don't live that way, you can't film that way. Well, well, that, that is it. I feel emotion. I feel emotional. Now. It's like it's like it's like a service or something. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing that, yeah. uh, Richard. That that story, and I think that's a very nice note to end on. Yeah. Thank you both for joining Thank and you. for sharing your thoughts and experiences. And uh, yeah, we look yeah. forward to having you on again sometime soon. And we'll have both of, if you haven't read, this is for listeners, if you haven't read uh, Blair's piece in N plus one or Richard's piece, pieces that we referenced here in the New Yorker, we will link them both in the show notes. So you can find them and they're both absolute must reads so. and i don't think we mentioned it but richard's you know brilliant and also for me you know epical biography of good art everything is cinema thank please, you please please check I, it out I, I, that means a lot to me good to talk with you it's good to meet you the film comment podcast features original music by greg Einge. film comment is a publication of film at lincoln center since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com. 